In London, technology is the Silicon Roundabout. Introducing a new talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. Silicon Real. Each week, interviewing entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, financial technology, accelerators, and incubators in an exciting three-person format. Learn about the people behind the innovation. Locally filmed, locally sourced. Silicon Real. It's about the people. This is Silicon Real, the weekly talk show dedicated to the people of the London technology startup scene. I am Brian Rose. I also host London Real. It's the same studio, but we have uh, not just tech people here. We get politicians in, some rock stars, some authors, some filmmakers, some whistleblowers. It gets a little crazy. Some professional athletes. Some professional athletes. Yeah, we had an NBA NBA guy in here recently. So uh, check that out at LondonReal.tv. But today we're here to talk tech. My co-host is Colin Pyle. Uh, You're running uh, coffee companies. You got new blends. You're all around the world. You got financing. What's going on? Yeah, busy, busy times. So, you you yeah. make co- the coffee business sound uh, just so glamorous. So glamorous. I yeah. fly first class in all these places. No, <laughs> lie down beds. No, yeah, I think things are good, man. Just really, really busy. We, we're launching our new website tomorrow. Um, okay. So it's been a huge push to get that in place and launching new blends and. Uh, yeah, it's just really busy. Some new new staff starting next week as well. So you know, just slowly growing and and uh, yeah, trying trying to trying to be a success. Scaling up. Yeah. We could we yeah. could take the intros of each one of these shows and piece together like a documentary there about the highs and lows of, of <laughs> Crew Cafe. Um, one, one guy commented, he's like, "You always seem to be coming out with new blends and traveling to Italy." <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. It's like, when are you going to do stuff? So that's we're little, working on it. That's it's a little hard. feedback to hard. you. So all right, thanks for thanks for being here. No, love it. Um, on with the show. Our guest today is Sandy Carter, who is a global general manager at IBM in charge of ecosystem development and social business evangelism. You are a best-selling author and one of the key leaders responsible for setting the direction for IBM's social business initiative. I want to hear all about this. The uh, NAFE named you a social media star, a woman of excellence. Uh, you worked at IBM for over 25 years after graduating, uh, graduating from Harvard Business School. I think you hail from the great state of Texas. Woo-hoo. Is that true? That's right. You um, got it. We got to hear about that. Um, Sandy, <laughs> welcome to Silicon Reel. Thank you, Brian. It's such a pleasure to be here. We were just so excited to hear that you were going to come. You know, we usually have, uh, you know, this it's, it's, it's the Silicon Roundabout. You know, we usually talk about the startups in the community, the VCs, the journalists. And, you know, we've had some recently some big companies, which is some great Series B rounds, 20, 30 million, you know, dollars and pounds from companies like Doodill. Uh, we had Nutmeg on here. There's yeah. a financial tech kind of trend Brand going watch. there. Yeah, yeah Brandwatch, TransferWise. But we haven't had anyone that really talks to kind of the those Fortune 500 companies and finds out what they're thinking, how they're using social. So, uh, so many questions to ask you. Um, I also uh, don't know a lot about uh, some of the stuff you're going to tell me, so I might have lots of questions. <laughs> but okay, um, if you could just tell us, wh- how do larger companies um, uh, engage in the social media space? It's something that we usually talk about consumers, and we don't usually think about the corporate engagement. Um, how do they do it, and what have you learned, and, and what do you usually tell people? Sure. That's a lot of questions. So let's, let's see what we <laughs> can do, do here. Yeah, <laughs> means I can give you any answer. Um, you know, a lot of enterprise companies today are using social to better connect and engage with their clients. And so while they're using some of the consumer tools like a Twitter or a Facebook kind of tools, they're also creating their own communities that are more private networks, which we see as part of the new trend out there, right? Having a private network, sometimes invite only, 
sometimes just for an open dialogue, but it's on their terms versus on some other company's terms. So we've really seen some great companies. Uh, in fact, I know that you hail, Colin, from uh, the great country of Canada. There we go. Uh, TD Bank, yeah. great example of leveraging social. They've done some amazing things inside their corporation to better engage their employees, creating communities where they can thank their employees for great service. And, you know, one of my favorite quotes is that a great company cannot have great customer engagement without great employee engagement. Mm. So folks like TD are using social to engage their employees, to get their employees empowered to um, shape the strategy and to help them go. So this wow group at TD, they give all these great stories of great customer service. Their company then recognizes that legendary customer service They um, leverage that for training. They give awards to the employees, and they really then listen to what's really happening on the front lines to learn more. In fact, some of their advertising slogans have also come from that community where they've gotten that input coming in. So that's just one example of how a, a, a top enterprise would leverage or use social. You know, you said you, you told a story where you were sitting uh, on the tarmac in a plane and uh, you struck up a, a conversation with a CEO yeah. and, and he said, uh, we don't do social. And uh, I think you were like, well, uh, but it seems like that could be a lot of attitudes to an old school corporation is we don't even want to engage. But you can't, you can't not engage. Is that right? That's right. In fact, it's, it's more dangerous not to engage than to engage. That same CEO that was sitting on the tarmac, actually, while I was flying to Toronto again, um, <laughs> You know, he he was really funny because he thought that he could opt out of social. And the reason he wanted to opt out of social was he thought that that was a safer path, right? If I don't get out there, if I'm not publicly chatting, then people can't say anything bad about me. Where in reality, if you're not out there listening and you don't know what people are saying about you, you can't, you know, engage in that dialogue. You don't understand what's happening. Um, that very day that I was sitting next to the CEO, one of his competitors had posted this really funny YouTube video about him. And he was amazed. He's like, how could this happen? We opted out of social. So I had to explain, well, this is how social works. <laughs> and, you know, he didn't get it. Um, he was not a digital native, not a digital immigrant. He didn't get social. And so once I explained it to him, you know, he did get it. He called the CMO and actually we're doing business together now. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, I read an article recently about talking about CEOs and, and actually CEOs having a social sort of profile. So not only the company engaging in social, but actually like an Elon Musk mm-hmm. engaging in social and being able to cut through a lot of the red tape and, you know, challenge arguments or, you know, he's pretty famous for doing it against certain articles written about, you know, Tesla and stuff like that. But I thought it was really interesting. And, and I, totally agree. Do you, do you think it's a generational thing where a lot of the CEOs, the average age of a CEO may be at a point where they're just not comfortable with it? You know, I don't think it's age related because you do, I mean, while you do have digital natives, you have these digital immigrants, right? Like right. myself True. who, you know, just fell in love with it and started leveraging it to engage with my clients and my partners. I think it really has to do with, you know, are you transparent and do you have a certain style about you that wants to listen to ideas and and innovate with others, right? Combine that innovation and crowdsourcing or are you more command and control, right? Like I met Elon and he's amazing. He is definitely, he is so innovative, but he listens, right? He likes to listen. He wants to hear other ideas. He's not threatened by someone who maybe disagrees with him, right? He debates you. So I think it really depends upon style, maybe more than age. 
Agree. You just published your uh, 2014 business trends, tech trends report. Um, is that is that what's what's here, right? Yes. Okay, we've got a copy yeah. hot off the presses. What, what did you learn, or what what did you realize? Things when they're going in social, or just the way that kind of the the big corporates or the winning corporates are. are I guess, integrating or interacting with the rest of the community. Yeah, I I love this year's um, business tech trend study because what we looked at is we looked at those pace setter companies. So again, we looked at 1,500 companies. They're not all big. They're big. They're startups. Uh, they're medium-sized companies. And we what we wanted to know is those who are really excelling in the marketplace, who are pace setters, about 27% of those folks, what are they doing that's different than all the rest of the companies out there? What could we learn from them? And we learned three really interesting things. Um, and the first one was my big aha, which was these pace setters are partnering in different and more creative ways. In fact, they're two to three times more likely to partner with a university to innovate for skills. They're two times more likely to partner with citizen developers and they're also more likely to partner with different types of um, you know, folks, not just in universities and citizen developers, but across the board to use clients as part of that partnering community. So they're really looking at expanding their skill base through citizen developers, startups, universities, and really get that innovative power brought in. So if you think about it, you know, today if you're you know, developing an app, has to be mobile, right? It has to be, have to have some social in it, has to have analytics in it. Where do you find folks who really know that space really well? Well, they're probably in university or they're in startups or they're, you know, they're, they're out there in the citizen realm. And so the power of that, these pace setters have really harnessed in. What is a citizen developer? How do you define that? Yeah, great question. So a citizen developer is, could be a hobbyist, right? Someone who um, codes for fun could be someone who has a tech skill but maybe doing something different, right? Like owning a coffee shop. Uh, it could be someone who is um, just really passionate about development, does it for their day job, but in the evening they want to do some coding for good. Like in the United States, we have a group called Code for America. We have all kinds of citizen developers there working on projects that help you know, the country out. So a citizen developer is really opening it up to any type of person who has technical skill. For instance, um, I'll give you an example um, in Honolulu, Hawaii, which is, I know, in the United States, but I could use Lisbon or Sydney or many other cities as well. But I love the Honolulu story because they had all this great data, and they opened it up to their citizens to develop apps. They created an app platform, happens to be on IBM's cloud, but that app platform then enabled these citizens to write apps. And let me give you some of the cool apps they did. They did one called Debus, and it really is called Debus. I'm not just uh, <laughs> stumbling over my words. And it's, a, it's just a simple bus schedule. When's the bus going to be on time? When is it going to be late? They went on to also do a, a tsunami warning system. So they had community leaders. They created a community, checked the siren, you know. And in fact, it's so good that Japan now wants to leverage that tsunami. Now, think about that. This tsunami system was written by a citizen developer. Um, they created an app called TripIt so that local Hawaiians could provide walking trails for those folks coming as tourists to the city. It's been so successful that Honolulu will now expand it. Um, similar, similar things have been done in Stuttgart in Germany, who also leads in the space of using citizen developers. Um, in fact, the uh, University of Stuttgart opened this up to students 
and they developed you know, really interesting apps. And one of my favorites, which is actually going to turn into a startup, they developed an app for the iPhone where if it snows, it will automatically adjust your alarm. So 30 minutes early hmm. if it's snowing. Uh, you can put in your normal uh, route to work or to school, automatically adjust if there's traffic on the route. So they're, they're anticipating different things that could impact you and making your life um, easier. And uh, how did London score in this report, or what can you learn about our city? Yeah, our it was really, uh, really interesting. And um, in London, the interesting thing was we found that partnering with universities was one of the lower scores. So UK and London had one of the lower scores. Germany, pretty high. United States, pretty high. And uh, we had a roundtable today, actually, down in Shoreditch to kind of discuss this. Why, why don't we see more partnering with universities, with startups? Now, I know there are some, because today I met some that you know, actually sit in a university campus. But overall, uh, we saw you know, even a lot of the research that's done here in London or England with the schools, that research actually ends up in startups in New York City or in Silicon Valley. When was the last so, time we talked about a university here in London? I mean, seriously, 60 yeah. episodes, and sure. I, mean, I have to say, uh, anecdotal evidence for you, but we don't talk about the student that came from LSE or any of, that, of those kind of things. So, yeah, was, I guess, you know, Sherry is quite involved, and, in, you know, she lives in Cambridge, Sherry Kutu. And, oh, Sherry you know, Kutu, yeah. So, Cambridge is yeah, a different story, yeah. but I think in London... Exactly, yeah. So you just found there wasn't that engagement. There wasn't. And, you know, today when we had our roundtable, we had a group of 25 influencers from London together. Um, you know, universities, startups, uh, app developers, some um, entrepreneurial groups as well. We kind of were brainstorming, you know, does it start with the way that London, I guess the country maybe, does education? You know, where you select a, uh, you know, a major early on, you know, when you're 16, you kind of stay in that major and you don't share, you're, you're kind of siloed. So does it start there and therefore you don't get a lot of sharing that's done with, co- with you know, companies? Does it have to do with IP? You know, we just kind of batted it around. I also understand, I think this week, uh, a startup manifesto was released here too. And they called out the same thing that we needed to do more here in London to partner with universities. So one of the things that uh, we suggested is um, uh, NYU, in the United States, they're doing a really interesting program to engage companies with universities. We thought we might bring over some of the folks from NYU, who've been partnering with IBM as well, with some of the universities here in London and just have a dialogue and see if we could share some best practices. I don't know. What do you guys think about that? It's interesting to hear that the research in London goes to New York and, you know, the Valley, which is, you know, and we're always, of course, talking about the Valley in New York here because, you know, they are the major competitors. They're leading the way. So we're always comparing ourselves. But this is kind of interesting to hear and surprising to hear. But also some of the major tech centers in the States, they were spawned from the universities. You know, there's no... You know, Valley from Stanford and all the different peaks, you know, Austin, all those things. But London is, you know, the capital, the financial capital, the government capital. But how many schools are really here? Yeah, I think I I've always thought universities would be so cool if they had, you know, like an incubator accelerator program for after you graduate to, to help foster their own students. And, I, you know, I work pretty closely with my where I went to graduate school at Holt um, and, you know, in less of a tech way. But they're always interested in what I'm up to and how they can help me in some way. And so I think, you know, it's a huge, as a big customer, as a startup, it's mm-hmm. so important. But then also having, you know, universities help foster people's ideas coming straight out of school. Yeah, I mean, even if you think about NYU, which is in, you know, New York City is pretty, fi- you know, financial district, marketing district, pretty similar to London, yeah. right? Yeah. 
Um, and one of the things that they're doing, which I love, is they are um, one of the classes, so the students actually get grades for it, is they form student teams, and then the student teams work with multiple um, companies, enterprise companies, startup companies. They get little projects, citizen developers, if you would, right, from a university setting. And those, you know, as I talked to NYU, that program is always sold out. The students who participate in it are really valued because they've had some real-world experience. But also, the investment banks, you know, the digital agencies that exist there, they get so much value, too, because these are the kids who are using mobile and social, and they understand you know, the next generation and the market. So everybody wins in that scenario. So I'd love to have something like that happen here in London as well. Yeah. yeah, my school did something like where we had like an action project. And so, you know, we spent a few months where every week we would meet with the CEO of a company and try to help them out with whatever problem they may be having. But I think it's not done nearly enough. And is it done on the tech side? I mean, we had yeah, exactly. 25 of your key influencers today. And, you know, there was only two out of 25 who said that they were experimenting with it. And one guy actually came in from Cambridge. So right. he was the guy from Cambridge. Yeah. Um, and we had three folks from Ireland, and they also said they were going to take that back to yeah. Dublin to see if they could try to get something, you know, initiated and started around that area. Yeah, I mean, look at our data set of 60 episodes. We haven't even mentioned a university name that often, right. let alone talked about what yeah. they're giving to the startups or how they're influencing. So, uh, okay, that's good. Yeah. Put that on the list. Um, what, el- what else did we learn in this report or what else oh, kind of stuck yeah. out? Another big aha was um, analytics. So analytics was viewed as being a core way that companies make better decisions. And these pace setters not just used analytics, but they embedded analytics into their decision-making process. And that, it didn't matter if they were a Fortune 500 company or a startup. Even the startups that were considered pace setters were users of analytic data, not just gut feel. You know, they trusted their data. They had the analytics, the predictive capability to use and leverage the data for advantage. In fact, one partner here, uh, Red Ant, I don't know if you guys have talked to them, they won the uh, Watson Challenge with IBM. You know, and part of their competitive advantage is they have embedded analytics into their entire solution for retail. So while we do have great examples like Red Ant or even Monetize here in London who are doing this, one of the big gaps we found was that companies in the UK, so this wasn't London, but UK aren't using analytics as much as other countries. In Mm -hmm. fact, fall a little bit behind Germany, um, Asia, and the United States. So I found that also interesting. And in our roundtable today, we discussed perhaps it's not trusting data. Perhaps it's a cultural thing that, you know, people in London are very creative and they go with their gut feel maybe more than data. So I'd be curious. What do you yeah. guys think? I'm not Why? surprised to hear that. You know, I, I don't know. I mean, it, it is a cultural thing. I mean, when you think of Germans, you think about precision engineering right. and getting everything exactly right. Um, I, I don't know. In the U.K., it's interesting, and maybe it has something to do that we're not next to these universities. I don't know. I'm I'm listening to this book called In the Plex right now, which is the mm-hmm. whole story of Google, and they were always about the numbers, but they were PhD students, so it just was part of the culture from the very beginning. Um, I don't know. It's a good question, but I'm not surprised to hear it. What do yeah, you know, yeah. I think data, you know, is, is part of the DNA of a company. I don't think you can do data for one area and not data for another. So I, I'm surprised to hear that startups aren't using data because it feel like that's just something you implement. And we've had guys on the show, Ometria and Go Squared, and it's super easy now to 
to get you know, good data. To get good data that that you can understand Google Analytics. You know, so I wouldn't. I, I'm surprised at startups. I can see maybe you know a larger company that's not in the tech space maybe wouldn't have data because they've always made decisions on relationships. So I'm or, wondering if it has to do with skills. You know, mm-hmm. um, to really be great at analytics, not just having data, but use you know use analytics. You have to have really good quality data scientists. But you also have, good, have to have good storytellers, right? So if you think about it, if you just do the math and science piece, and you've got that math and science piece down, and you've got the analytics, you've got to tell a story with it to take it forward to your board or to your right. CEO. And I'm just wondering, you know, again, back to the training, you know, given it's more silo-based and not, not broad-based, is that maybe inhibiting the use of analytics, um, yeah. Or is it a trend in startups? So where we got, you know, like we have Red Ant, we have Monetize who are using it, and others, you know, using Watson Analytics and other other tools. You know, is it maybe some of the more established companies? Yeah, I think the skill is is for sure. I think it does take a dedicated person within sort of a company, even if it's a relatively small company, because yeah, again, it's in your DNA. So looking making decisions on a bit of data is is probably a negative impact. You have to sort of the broad, make a story yeah. right? and, and look at it from a bird's eye view and put together the data that matters and then action you know, decisions based on your board or your CEO to, to actually use that data to make, make decisions. So I think you need an analytic mind too. I yeah. mean, I think the CEO has to be either proven that way or been thinking that way because right. startups have been in London for hundreds of years, you yeah. know, whether it's yeah. a merchant ship going sure. off to get spices, but you know, uh, if you're not used to making decisions by the numbers and trust the data, it's like yeah. a GPS. You either trust it or you don't, or you don't. in the middle, yeah. it doesn't work. It's true. <laughs> it's very true. Sandy, you travel all over the world. What, what does it feel when you get to the London tech? sector? What do you hear about London when you're in the States? Is it part of the conversation? Is it not? Is there certain sectors where people are like, okay, we're taking notice. I just want to get your general feel and you won't offend us. Yeah. You know, I've, uh, I've now traveled to 82 countries, which, which I love because I get to experience so many different cultures and see, you know, the energy and the excitement that the startups have. I would say, you know, if I had to really call out five centers that I think are, are really top of mind for me for startups, of course it would be Silicon Valley would be hot. Um, now, India, the in, Valley in San Francisco, are you putting those into I one? I would, yeah. yeah. San Francisco okay. now is hotter than sure. yeah, Silicon yeah. Valley, depending upon <laughs> where you, yeah, where you, where you lean. Yeah, I was sure. just out in San Fran. We did an event out there cool. and yes, absolutely. Um, I see a lot of startups in New York City. And in fact, I see a lot of push from New York City to take away kind of the crown from mm-hmm. Silicon Valley with some of the new tax breaks from the state and from the city in New York. So I see a lot of excitement there. Um, Israel, so Tel Aviv, you know, uh, just amazing technology. India, lots of amazing uh, startups there. In fact, we did a, um, we have something called a global entrepreneur program to help startups. We did a hackathon there, a mobile hackathon. We had 200,000 people sign up. Whereabouts are you finding that in India mostly? Um, well, actually, uh, well, Delhi has a lot. Yeah. Mumbai, um, Chennai, yeah. kind of spread. Those sure, three yeah. are probably the three big yeah. biggies, you know? Yeah. Mumbai, of course, for more financial applications. Delhi, more government, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but the All energy over. and the excitement is just amazing there. Yeah. And then the fifth one, I would say, is London. Um, you know, I spent the, the morning today down in Shoreditch, uh, you know, walking around the square and talking to lots of startups down there. Lots of energy, lots of excitement. 
And the word is out with what you guys are doing around entrepreneurs here. It seems like there is a renewed energy, I would say in the last maybe two years, that I had not seen coming from an entrepreneur attitude out of London. Yeah, no, that's what we're seeing as well. We're kind of feeling it. Like I said, we're seeing those Series B rounds. We're seeing the government get very well involved. Even if it's photo ops, at least they're involved and they're talking about it. And, you know, it's a unique capital. That there's some real fintech stars here that I think will, you know, take over. But, you know, we had Debu in here a couple of weeks ago, a former Google employee, and he, he's looking for the fintech company that will be the next Google. Right. You know, something of that scale. And he thinks we need a network effect, which I think we have here. You know, a lot of support, government supporting. The banks are, what, one mile away. Yeah, exactly. That kind of thing. You know, the innovator's dilemma comes up all the time, Um, Sandy. We talk about it, and all the companies I just listed, it's the banks versus the new one coming up. It seems like your job is all about the innovator's dilemma. I mean, it seems like you're trying to teach people not to fall into these traps to see if they can engineer their way around it. Um, What do you think when you hear that term? I know it's a simplistic term, but when you hear it, what do you think? And what do you tell people? Well, you know, it's really interesting because if you look at, um, you know, even the study we just did, the BizTech study, you know, um, the word innovation actually never came up, but every one of the aha moments leads to innovation, right? Analytics leads to new innovative projects, maybe a new integrated market that you didn't know about before. If you think about partnering in a new way, you know, if you're partnering with startups or with a university or citizen developers, it's leading you into a new market. It's providing with new skills, providing with the innovation. Um, even, you know, working with the technology, which was one of the pieces of the study, all of that's about innovation. So I think that today innovation is, um, almost assumed like people have to have innovation to be successful, whether you're a big company or a small company. And that's one of the reasons why I love my job right now. I uh, get to focus on entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship we have a, a, an entrepreneur program and we do smart camps. So we help these young entrepreneurs focus on innovation. We provide a business mentoring, technology mentoring, connection to VCs to help them through that innovator's dilemma, to get them over the hump when they just have a great idea. You, there's so much more, right, than just a great product. You need a company. You need to be an entrepreneur, not just an inventor. And so um, that's part of what we're I'm focusing on today is how to really encourage help to grow because it's easy to start a company. It's hard to grow a company. So really helping these companies not just get started, but helping them to grow and to take their innovation to the next level. And you're working with these entrepreneurs on the front lines. What do you see and what's changed in the last couple of years? Are you seeing kind of a new breed? Are they well-versed? Do they know all the terminology better? Or what are you seeing and what do you want to see more of? Yeah, you know, it's really funny. We call it kind of like the, and I don't know if you guys watch Shark Tank here, but like the Shark Tank phenomena. Is it popular here? Uh, we, you, know, we know of it. You know of yeah. it. Okay. Mark, Mark Cuban. Mark Cuban, yeah. 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 So, so, but break, break it down briefly for people yeah. that haven't seen it. What do they do? So on Shark Tank, it's kind of like a VC on steroids. These um, four or five entrepreneurs, millionaires and billionaires, listen to pitches. Companies come in and they pitch their idea. And then on the spot, these guys fund the company and they take an equity position or a royalty position in the companies. It is right now the most watched TV show in America. Wow. Uh, It's now going to go on five nights a week, not just one night a week. And it is the number one watch show by teenagers between 13 and 18. So more than all the, you know, the vampire werewolf, you know, zombie shows out there is the Shark Tank. 
So it's really this Shark Tank phenomena that we're seeing from entrepreneurs all over. Even today at our, you know, we had a session at Shoreditch with startups. You know, people not, not as much pitching, but sharing their idea and their thoughts, asking for help, um, really motivated to take what they're doing, not just as a product, but to take it to market. You know, I think a couple years ago, you asked me some of the differences. You know, people would come in with a better mousetrap. Now I think people are getting, entrepreneurs are getting that it's not just a better mousetrap, but it's how do you take that to market, right? What are the elements to make it successful? You got to have sales and what do you need to think about? Because, you know, the best product doesn't always win, right? It's all the elements that surround the great idea that helps it to be successful. Do you think the Shark Tank phenomenon will, will start conditioning young adults to just yes. be ready to pitch all the time? Absolutely. In fact, I, I have two daughters. And the other day, my one daughter, she came in and she's like, Mom, I've got a great idea. I'm like, oh, okay, great. You know, and I was folding laundry or something. She goes, sit down. And she almost did like Shark Tank style, pitched me her great idea for, you know, something really cool that she wants to sell at school. Yeah. And I thought, you know, she would never have done that a couple years ago. She's got the bug, that startup bug that I think is so phenomenal. Because, you know, if you think about an entrepreneur, an entrepreneur just doesn't happen. They kind of grow up, right? You have to get into the life cycle of the entrepreneur. So, you know, part of my job, I told you, is the startups, but I also have the academic program. So we actually start trying to reach potential entrepreneurs in high school. And then we take that all the way up because you can become an entrepreneur at 50, right? I mean, there's no age that you can't become an entrepreneur. So it's really that whole mindset. I think that you grow up as an entrepreneur. You think that way and then you become an entrepreneur, hopefully one day. You know, I love now is it's relatively cheap to get an idea or even a product, right? You know, you could you can make your own product at home and sell it on Etsy or, you know, do all these sorts of things. I think as a young kid to, to explore and learn and, and be an entrepreneur and try and fail is, 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 is such a great, great opportunity. Absolutely. And with the cloud technology out there, you know, we have something called Bluemix. And, you know, you can get out there and try it for free. Right build your application, test it, which is the, the new entrepreneur, right? You're going to build, you know, lean startup, right? Style. You get out there, you build something quick, you find out people like it, you design it, and then you move on and you develop and move and go. I love yeah. that, you know, kind of fast sprints as your lean startup grows. And that's what kids can do too. Yeah, that's great. Talk to me about IBM and their own innovators dilemma. I mean, IBM has been around for a long time. You know, you were making, you were, you were the makers of hardware, you know, in the 60s and 70s, the only makers of hardware. And then Microsoft came along and you had a famous, you know, kind of semi battle with them. And you, you've seen come and go all of these innovators along the way. And you've been there for a long time. How does a company... <laughs> not that long. Yeah, I don't not that, that old. Come on, <laughs> Brian. I'm talking to startups like two years in. But uh, I'm just fascinated. I remember reading a book called Big Blues, and it was all about the fight between Microsoft and IBM in the 80s. And I mean, you know, you're at this company, and you're, you're still enacting change. How does it work when you're steering a ship that moves slowly, or does it move slowly? What is the IBM like today? I, I don't know. You know, I think um, IBM today is, and, it, and it, it just continues to transform. And I think today, um, especially with the new transformational leadership, we're moving really fast. We're really big, so you might not see it as fast as we feel it. But, you know, the movement to cloud with Bluemix, it's an incredible cloud platform. Um, just, you know, tens of thousands of developers are coming over to it, transforming the way we do business. 
Uh, if you think about the shift in analytics, the shift that we're seeing across the board, IBM really has set into motion some more big transformations. And just as we've done in, in the past, you know, we've been around for 102 years. Um, you know, we, we have to, you have to transform, right? I mean, if you're a startup, you're going to start. And when you're successful, you grow. But you can't stay the same. You always have to change. And that's why, you know, when people say to me, wow, you've been with IBM for 25 years. I have, but it's been almost like working for multiple different companies, multiple different roles, because we constantly change to stay on top of the game. And is it is it difficult getting a message out there with all lots of other corporates getting into the space? It's, we joke on the show sometimes, like not another incubator, because all these corporates seem to come to London and launch an incubator. It's almost getting a little crazy uh, because there's so many of those. Right. Is it hard to compete when every corporate tries to wants to get into this entrepreneur space? Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's always hard with a share of voice, but I think the real, you know, the real secret, if you would. It's going to be around the engagement. You know, I really think, you know, part of the transformation, focusing with entrepreneurs, focusing with developers, uh, making sure we've got that university piece in. I think it's going to be about that engagement. So I think the awareness and things that typically would come from advertising is good. But I think the better thing is directly engaging as we go along. And for me, that's how you break through the noise, right? I mean, look at your show. The way that you guys are successful is not that just that you're advertising things. You're engaging your audience. You're telling a story. You've got a value prop. And that's really the same strategy that IBM is using is we're engaging the audience at the right place at the right time. You know, if you think about entrepreneurs, um, even in the study, entrepreneurs and developers are very influential. And what startups do, enterprise wants to do. Um, in fact, if you talk to VCs, they'll tell you they're overrun today with, you know, Fortune 500 companies. They all want to see what the startups are doing. And if the startups are using Ruby on Rails or Python, they want to use Ruby on Rails and Python. So there's a lot of, you know, influence there. So as IBM transforms and we work with the entrepreneurs to make them successful, that engagement will just breed success as well. And the pace setters are contacting these startups and engaging yeah. with them on their own. They're not waiting until they have to buy them as That's a capitulation. Right. They're going out and engaging. That's right. And partnering in numbers that we've never seen before. So, you know, I think it's interesting, an interesting time for startups now where, you know, startups used to say, well, you know, Sandy, help me get a call with an enterprise customer, right? I want to be in a Fortune 500, a Fortune 100 company. But today, I think the power really sits a lot with startups, and they should use and leverage that power. These Fortune 500 companies want to innovate. Back to your innovator's dilemma. They want to innovate. They, they see the innovation power in a startup, and so they're hungry for that. So I wouldn't you know, not go into an enterprise or a Fortune 100, 500 company. I'd be empowered to go there and to uh, take that, that plunge, because I think that's what those Fortune 500 companies are looking for. And just like IBM learns from entrepreneurs, like we run a lot of smart camps, and these are camps where we bring in entrepreneurs to pitch, to pitch to us, right? And, and then we select the best, and we have a global entrepreneur of the year. You know, we learn as those entrepreneurs come in. So for instance, this year, we're seeing that a lot of entrepreneurs and startups are entering around Internet of Things, and not just Internet of Things like it used to be around sensors, but more around how you use the data and how you use the analytics, back to the analytics term, how you analyze the data that you're getting from the shirt that you're wearing or the Fitbit that you have on or, you know, the more B2B examples as well. How do you leverage and use that data 
and as analytics. So we're learning. Those startups are coming in. They're getting funded. That's giving us more insight into the market and giving us the ability to innovate. You're speaking tomorrow at a conference. What are you going to be trying to tell those people? Or what is your goal for the next year if you get a win? Is it, is it getting these people to make some real changes in their businesses? Yeah, so tomorrow we're going to be talking about the, the, the different trends, but we're going to be talking to about 200 entrepreneurs and showing them, again, some of the, I think, the core things that are going on that they can make money with, you know, how they can improve their businesses and make money. You know, success over the next year, I believe, is that entrepreneurs and startups see the value of working with IBM and that IBM isn't this, you know, big, old, slow company, that we're fast moving, that we have a great platform called Bluemix that they can develop on, and that we have programs like this Global Entrepreneur Program that can help them with business mentoring, technology mentoring, and connection with the VCs, that that's, you know, that that breaking through the noise that you talked about earlier, that we break through that noise with that great engagement that we want to do at a very local level. That's important. Where does that take place? The entrepreneur, uh, sort of accelerate. Yeah. That you have. Yeah. So we actually have, um, some here in London, we have over at level 39, we have an innovation center that's up 24 by seven and you can go there as a startup and get help on the technology and business side. We also have a partnership with um, Shoreditch, the Village Hall, over here in um, a set of buildings for startups. And then we also run smart camps, and we run those all over the world. So we do about 78 of those. Um, in wow. fact, I just met with a smart camp winner from here in London. And, um, and we do those, and then we host a global entrepreneur event. But we offer support for entrepreneurs throughout the year for, through this entrepreneur program. So they can get mentoring. Think about IBM. I mean, we've, we've acquired a lot of startups, right? I mean, a lot of startups. It's part of our strategy is acquisition. And all those startups are, were entrepreneurs. And so we have a breadth of great skill that, that we use to leverage and mentor these entrepreneurs. Um, and I think that value really shows through. And we do that globally. We, uh, we had a partner in Africa called Modi. And they had this five-year plan. They wanted to go to two countries in five years. They were growing rapidly in Africa. And they joined our program, and we were able, because we're a global company, we were able to connect them up with, with different markets. They went to six, opened six new markets for them, new countries, in the first year of their business. So we accelerated their business plan from five years down to a year and got them in six countries instead of five. So that's kind of the power of you know, working with a program like that. And I know we have one as well as others as well that startups can join. You know, we're, we're talking lately a lot about women in tech, and you were probably one of the original women in tech. I'm guessing there weren't that many women around. So Back when I they had again? covered wagons, probably not. So maybe not that bad. But I, I'm curious, because you, you must have a perspective that other people don't, that have been maybe around for five years or ten years, and they're like, okay, this is the women's in tech. But you've seen a trend, you know, going probably in different ways. Well, what's your read when you hear it talked about? How have you dealt about it through your career? Tell me. Well, you know, you know, we've seen uh, a lot of progress, a lot more women in tech, but not enough women in tech, uh, I would argue. And I would say that uh, one of our particular focus areas are women entrepreneurs. I don't know about London, but I would say globally around the world, we don't have enough women startups and we don't have enough women entrepreneurs. So we in particular do um, some extra programs and extra things for women entrepreneurs. Um, and we, we actually start early. You know, I talked about this shark tank phenomena that's happening, we're actually starting earlier and earlier. So if you look at the numbers, it's really quite um, dismal for, the, for young girls in schools today 
who are taking tech classes who one day could start, you know, a tech startup or other startups. The numbers have actually declined. As in lower, you know that? lower numbers of girls taking coding yep. classes? Yeah, really? coding cl- Yes, mm. it's been declining. In fact, I would tell you, believe it or not, per capita, there are actually more girls in tech today in Cuba. That means, you know, young girls in um, high school that, are, that really want to focus on math and computer science in Cuba per capita than London or the United States. It's really a, an issue. So, in fact... Why uh, the decline, do you think? You know, as we talk to some y- uh, younger girls, they think that it's, uh, you know, if you're going to code or if you're going to be a startup, you're going to be, like, working in a basement and there's going to be no light and you're going to mm. be, you know, it's not going to be fun. Um, also, there's still a um, permeation of, uh, you know, boys teasing girls when they're good at math or science. Mm. And so, um, in fact, one of my, one of my daughters got into an advanced math class and she's like, I can't do that because no boys will, will talk to me ever. Right. At that teenage. Until she IPOs. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. So, um, we're actually starting earlier. There's a group called girls who code and we've done a lot of work with them as well as a lot of other tech companies. Um, Twitter has been a big sponsor of them. Lots of startups are sponsoring them because we all see this dilemma that's coming that there isn't going to be enough diversity. Because a lot of startups, I mean, well, actually, think about a startup. There's probably not a startup that doesn't need technology in some form or fashion, right? And so we do, we do see this as an impact as we move forward. So while, while we've seen at some of the levels that there are more women in tech, not enough women entrepreneurs, not enough young girls filling that pipeline. So we've done lots of things to try to you know, to try to encourage that. And I'd love for London to, to engage in that as well. You know, Girls Who Code is one effort. We do something called Excite Camps where we take girls in the summer for a week and we show them all the opportunities that exist with um, you know, different types of startup opportunities that they could go and the importance of technology in what that might be as they grow up. So when um, we do that around the world as well to really encourage, you know, encourage young girls to, to grow up in this area. But I do, you know, even today when we had we had 25 people at our roundtable, only two, two, only two. Shame on you, London. Were women, and so yeah, I, I do think we need to do some more encouragement here as well. How many women do you interview here? A lot. We're on quite of a run lately, yeah, aren't think, we? I think probably a quarter of our guests, maybe a third of our guests are women. Probably a quarter. Yeah. We're on a bit of a run lately. Mm-hmm. It's something that's definitely talked about here. I don't feel like there's much of a stigma. We had Claire from Code Club here, which really encourages you know younger people to code. And there are definitely some efforts where they're really pushing that and, and getting women involved, too. Uh, but I don't know how we compare. You know, I don't know how we compare to the Valley and, yeah. and, and here. Yeah, I don't know either. You know, it seems... It seems, you know, you go to sort of networking events around tech and it seems it's definitely male sort of heavy, but it doesn't seem that, that, that outrageous. And I think, I definitely think there's an emphasis on it in, in London. There's, there's people are aware of it and they're, you know, trying to encourage um, not only girls, but also women, right? It's just because you're yep, in your thirties, right. you know, we always say, um, easy at Google, they have, uh, mothers yeah. in sort of tech thing in the, uh, yeah. They have like a Tuesday, it's mothers, yeah. mothers in tech and then come in yeah, and get some hours and yeah. don't have to be 13, start to code. You can be 35 and have two kids yeah, and start to code. That's so, true. So. Well, and then I love the event I'm going to tomorrow, entrepreneur country with Julie Meyer. I mean, she yeah. is, um, a VC. She runs Entrepreneur Country. She's a great role model here in London uh, for folks who are looking to do this and I know has a lot of efforts around women in tech as well. 
I'll ask you a question. What advice do you have for, for some people leaving university? Um, you know, we've always talked about it because we spent some time in banking and we're always thinking maybe you should go to a, a large company and spend some time there, learn the ropes before you think about going somewhere else. We've also bumped into the 21-year-old that's like, I'm a startup entrepreneur. And you're like, are you? And so uh, <laughs> I was curious. Um, we get into grumpy old man modes. Yeah, exactly. But I was curious what you think. I mean, you've seen the corporate side. Do you think it's important? to say go out of college and spend a few years at an IBM or a big company and then go go your separate way? What are your thoughts? You know, I I see, you know, if you're thinking about starting a company, I mean anybody can start a company. I think when you when you look at companies that are that reach that growth and scale, they all look for some experience. So I think it's really advisable if you get some experience at a company. It doesn't have to be as big as an IBM, but I do think it's important to get some of that experience because I think then when you come up with that great idea and you have your startup, you've got that scalability in mind and you know how to scale your company. So you're not going to be one of those startups that comes in and you're the founder, but then when you start to grow an external CEO comes in and takes your place, right? We've all seen that happen before. So I do believe that if you get some of that experience, you know, I even think business school, you said you came here for business school. I think business school is a great, uh, another training ground, right? It gets you inundated to lots of different case studies and you don't have to live through all the, the hardships, but you learn from those hardships. I think those things are really valuable for entrepreneurs. And you went from Duke, you went straight to business school. Is that right? I did. Well, I was, Harvard doesn't allow you to go straight. I'm required to work for a year. So I worked okay. for a year at IBM and then I went on to Harvard. Okay. Was there a rush to get in there? Did you really want to get the business school aspect? I did. And if I had to do over again, I would have probably worked for longer. Um, because I think a lot of the lessons, I was pretty naive about it. And uh, Harvard typically likes to take you after five years they don't really actually accept many people right out of school. And so I thought it was a really cool thing. I was going to work for a year and go. But if I had it to do over again, I would have worked for five and then gone back. The problem is just inertia, right? Will you really do it once exactly. you work for five years? Once you, you get agree? on that treadmill. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I went. I, I had quite a bit of experience. And I feel, you know, I could, I could really take a case study and take what I learned in class and, and you, you know, reflect it on my own experience, um, which was very helpful in understanding things and how to improve. I almost went straight to the Sloan School of Business after my undergrad. And um, mm. I remember when you're 21, 22, you don't want to hear to wait. Wait. Everyone's yeah, like, true. You know, they're like, go spend two years on Wall Street. Like, yeah. two years. Exactly. And like, you, you don't want to, you don't right, want to, you don't want to. I need my, you know, my fancy car. And you're so materialistic at that age, I find. Yeah. And so immediately you just want to, let's get school out of here or, you know, and, and get the big paycheck. Yeah. But to you, you know, you're in this undergraduate mode where you're like, oh, it's just another year of learning. But I think the business school degree is really a reflection reflection on the mistakes you've made and then really applying that, Oh, I should have done that instead. And I don't think you have that experience. I agree. I agree. I would say, wait, if you can. Yeah. Okay. To anyone listening, there you go. Um, (laughs) Sandy, we ask everyone on the show a few questions at the end. I'm going to hit you with those. If you could make a phone call, uh, to the 20 year old Sandy Carter and give that young lady a bit of advice, what would you tell her? Wow, that's a good question. I would say, well, first I would say, don't go straight away to business school because <laughs> okay. that's what I did. <laughs> don't buy that red sports car right away. Wait, wait for a little while. Um, I think the other thing that I would say is, you know, um, to be more confident right away, not cocky. I don't mean cocky, but I mean more confident in your ideas. You know, when you um, when you're younger. Sometimes you think that you have a great idea and then someone says, no, that's not right. 
you kind of back down because you think, wow, they've got like five years of experience and you don't. But I think sometimes when you're coming at something with a brand new, fresh approach, that if you really push, you know, the majority is not always right and you need to have more confidence with your ideas. That would be one of the things that I would say is really go out in that limb and push and take more risk. Do you see this with the entrepreneurs or with your daughters or is this you seeing yourself in the past? Yeah, you know, the other thing that it, that it is is we, um, I just was reading, I was reading a couple books about successful leadership leaders, right? And one of the things almost all of them said, which I thought was interesting, was that they wish they had taken more risk earlier on that they had to learn to take mm-hmm. risks. They had to become more confident in themselves. And as I look back and really think about it, I think there would, might have been some risks that I would have taken that may have accelerated some of the things I wanted to do more quickly. And that doesn't mean take an uncalculated risk or you know, when you are wrong, admitting that you're wrong. You need to do that. But sometimes there's really not a right or a wrong. There's multiple ways to, to approach something. And sometimes just that extra push can get you over the line. We hear this a lot, don't we? Do you really? Yeah. Yeah. We hear a lot of people saying, you know, make those, uh, you know, make those mistakes and take those chances when you're young. A lot of times before you have the overhead of the family and, you know, and in retrospect, you, you really could have done anything at that point. Unfortunately, when you're there, sometimes it feels like your next decision is the biggest decision of your life. But I do believe, you know, even though I would have waited on going to, to business school, I would, I would actually repeat that. I really think that was very helpful to me. Um, and going to a business school that taught case study, I really like that a lot too. You know, not repeating the you know lectures, but really doing cases and having real companies come in. If I had to give myself advice, it would be repeat that. You know, go back to business school. You know, take that that shot because I do think that 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 has really enhanced my career. It gave me a great strong group of people to network with. We actually have a, a Harvard reunion coming up. You know, there's some incredible folks who've done incredible things, and I still know them. We learn from each other. And I just think it was an invaluable experience that I would not want to trade. Yeah, that's a special place. I mean, they're, they're known for that case sure. study mentality. I've heard the network is just one of the most valuable thing about Harvard. Maybe it isn't the most, but yeah, very, one of the most very. for sure. Yeah. And I do think, you know, that would maybe be the other piece of advice I would give people is to spend more time on networking and relationships. You know, sometimes when you're young, you're like, well, I've just got to get this piece of work done or I got to do that. But what you learn when you, when you get older is that those relationships were the most valuable thing, right? Not necessarily I you know, killed that project or I did that great presentation or I won that client, but it was the relationships that you develop with the client. It was the relationship you develop with your peers that, that turns out to be the most important thing. I was telling a, a young guy that working at one of the YouTube multi-channel networks here in, in London, and I told him the same thing that I said, all those people around you, you're going to be doing business with a large percent of them for the next 20 years. And he just had this glazed look in his eye. <laughs> he was like, yeah, yeah, okay, whatever. I got to go to this other startup. And I was like, no, really, you're going to bump back into them and they're going to have new companies and then you might work for them. You might hire them. Like all this is going to change. And they're like... No, the world seems big, but it can get really, really That's small. That's true, right? <laughs> you know, it really is. Especially yeah. within a certain industry or a certain uh, city. It, it's amazing how you know many people you bump into, even just around here. Or you know, I'm in, I'm in coffee, and I still bump into people I'm, you know, I, I have seen before in the tech space. Or just yeah. you know, never burn a bridge and always think about you know, fostering relationships. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just to finish up the advice yeah. questions, um, best advice you've ever received? Could be business, could be personal. Um, best advice I've ever received. Um, I would say the best advice I ever received would be that your family is most important and to prioritize your family. 
And I think that, you know, especially if you're really driven, I'm very driven, I'm very type A, it's very easy, you know, to get engaged and involved in doing your work. You know, I love my customers, I love what I do. And then to not give the right priority to your children. I have two daughters um, and your family. I have a husband and my, you know, my, just my extended family and friends. And I think that was probably the best advice someone gave me was, you know, make sure you're doing the care and feeding then because one day that will be what you have left, right? right? <laughs> and, uh, and it does, you know, people tell you when you have kids, they're like, it goes by like this. And you're like, yeah, right. I've got these kids for like forever, right? <laughs> but, you know, now I've got a daughter that's 16. I can't believe it. And it goes by so fast. So those moments are so important. Um, so one piece of advice I got in, in making sure that you make that real was bringing your kids with you on business trips. Mm-hmm. You know, and I know some people think, oh, that's just crazy. But um, it's done a couple things for my daughters. I bring them, I brought one of my daughters to a conference called Blog Her. It's the largest women's blogging conference in the world. Um, you know, it helped us to bond. It helped her to see me in a work environment. But it also, I mean, she's, she actually won her blogging contest at school. And she said she was motivated by seeing these businesses started by these women that were just bloggers. Mm-hmm. Um, my other daughter, um, I took out to California with me. This is the unfortunate thing is that now she wants to go live in California. <laughs> but I took her out to Silicon Valley and San Francisco where all the startup things were happening. And she felt the energy. She caught the bug. And so now... Not only did she get to go with me, I got to spend time with her, but she saw, you know, why I was so excited about working with entrepreneurs and startups, and now she wants to be one. And so a lot of people will say, you know, especially the school system, don't take your kids out of school. They're going to miss three days. Or, you know, it's unprofessional for you to take your child with you, Um, especially being a woman. That's just the worst thing. But everybody, everywhere I've taken my kids um, to conferences or to even to clients, I, I ask permission to take my daughters to clients, they've really embraced it. It's been great for my kids, and really a lot of the people around me have started doing the same thing. So I think it's great. You should really think about it and consider it. Powerful. Probably makes a great impression on the client, too, right? No, it's true. I don't know if back where, you know, in Toronto, you have a year like you take your kid to school day, but it's like one day every year where you would go to, you know, your dad or your uncle or your mom's, you know, office. But it's like, you know, to do that more often, I I think that's phenomenal. Especially in your field is so relevant to, you know, you have have a really cool job. Yeah, (laughs) I do. I do. do. And to get them, you know, it's like, um, you know, they've traveled to London. One of my daughters, you know, my daughters have come to, I mean, they've, they've traveled internationally. So they don't just have a, you know, they're not U.S. centric. They have a global perspective on the world. They don't just think about school. They think about, you know, work someday. I think it really is motivating Mm -hmm. to them. Yeah. So I would encourage people to do that as well. Do you think the tech sector is getting better about separating work time from personal time? Do you think they're going that way or is it always? No. Okay. I don't. I think it's just all mushed together. Right. And, and I actually like it better. I think it gives you more flexibility. I have my phone with me. I happen to be an iPhone user. You know, I can get to everything I need. I can do FaceTime on my phone. I can do meetings. I can get to what I need to do. And therefore it gives me time to go to my daughter's volleyball game. Right. Cause right. I'm not really out of touch, Okay. but I think the worlds are merging, especially with the millennials coming up, you know, they want to be flexible when they want to be flexible. They want to take time. And I think the technology helps us to do that. Right. Well said. Last part of that question is to mm-hmm. the, to the 20 year old that's listening to us somewhere in the world at one of these, you know, cities you're talking about that are coming up the curve in tech. What advice do you give to them if they want to get involved, if they want to be part of a tech startup? What do you tell them? 
start now. I mean, start by, you know, depending on how long you are, young you are, you know, uh, do a lemonade stand, see what business is really like. Um, you know, I started my daughter. She wants to be, she wanted to be a photographer selling pictures online. I mean, there's so many different places you can create crafts online, you know, experience it, go ahead and get started. There are also a lot of organizations that have um, youth groups. So like Thai, I don't know if you, you guys have Thai here. It's an international organization. It's one of the largest entrepreneur organizations. They have what they call Thai youth. And they do youth projects and youth pitches and all kinds of... So go ahead and get involved. Get engaged and uh, experience it to see if that's really what you want to do and what your, fa- your passion and your focus might be on. Don't wait. Don't wait. Very good advice. Um, Sandy, thank you so much for coming. Thanks for the insights. If people want to find out more about this report or get the report or contact you or you use your cloud services, how do they do it? Well, you can always go to IBM.com. We have a whole feature today on cloud. Uh, if you do hashtag IBMBTT, hashtag IBMBTT, and request the report, we'll send you the link. You can get the report for free. We have a bunch of digital assets on it, so you can use them all digitally. And then if you have a question for me, my um, Twitter ID is Sandy underscore Carter, and I'd love to hear from everybody. Tweet away. Tweet, tweet, tweet. Tweet, tweet, tweet. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, this, is a, this is a great show. It's such a nice change for us to get, you know, a, a different perspective. And, Absolutely. you know, someone that's not, you know, in the trenches here trying to create something, but someone on a different level. So, Sandy, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Uh, it's nice to have a Texan in the house. Hook <laughs> uh, up horns. <laughs> um, if you're watching us live, thanks for doing that. Um, if uh, you want to listen to us, we're on iTunes, so you can click on that, and you can have it downloaded free and walk around with that. Uh, somebody said he was mowing the lawn the other day and was listening to one of our shows so so uh that's all good and we would love any guest suggestions so uh keep that coming if you want to send us an email it's hello at siliconreal.com and uh that's it right what can i say our tagline is it's about the people sandy you're one of them thanks so much for being here thank you let's go get some coffee now there we go there you go all right (laughs) all the best thanks microsoft as a company we are um, you know, we're very um, interested in growing diversity, and we have a lot of programs around um, uh, girls in tech. We're working with the teams kind of in the trenches to help them, you know, get from whatever point they are at, at seed stage to, you know, to launch or to the next stage of their development. This is an exciting time. I mean, there's so much going on in the tech scene in London. One of the great things about Microsoft is that every big company in the world is a is a customer of ours, right. basically. And so one thing that startups need uh, as much, if not more, than they need money, they need uh, customers.